0: Good morning, and my welcome to you, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Genesis 45, verse 16, where you can follow along in a minute on the, the screen. I want to tell you about a, a student that I had the privilege to teach here at Sioux Falls Christian a few years ago. Her name is Dahlia Johnson, and uh, Dahlia is a, a soft-spoken, kind, intelligent, talented young woman. Uh, Her love for God and her love for people is evident in her life, her passion for God's Word. She graduated from Sioux Falls Christian in 2017. Uh, On July 7 of this year, just this past summer, she was rushed to the hospital with a a sharp pain in her right side, and after CT scans and blood work and other tests, they found an eight-centimeter tumor on her right adrenal gland, and they found spots on her lung, Some of you can relate to moments like that. I know in this church, there are individuals here who have sat in a doctor's office and heard those words. Some of you may at some point. We're we're finite and we don't know what the future holds. But I just wonder, how would you respond or how have you responded in moments like that? What convictions do you fall back on in a moment like that. What what truths, what promises from God do you cling to? I want to tell you how Dahlia responded. On July 11, she posted seven simple words on Facebook. Her status just read, for my good and for his glory. Two days later, she shared an update. The lung biopsy came back showed she tested positive for stage four adrenal cancer. She was then diagnosed with adrenocortical carcinoma, which is an aggressive cancer and rare. Literally, the incidence rate is one in a million. Her adrenal gland was removed. She went to Mayo to have surgery on her lungs. In mid-September, follow-up showed new growth and more spots. On October 30, she began another update with these words. Yet again, I proclaim for my good and for his glory. Severe pain had forced her back to the ER. A CT scan showed a new 11.4 centimeter tumor. And Sanford and Mayo both said, we can't do anything. It's too risky to operate at all. So she's since traveled to Mexico to pursue alternative treatment. And two weeks ago today, she posted this. This is an 18, 19-year-old girl. I feel so unworthy of this disease that God would choose to use me to be a part of his wonderful mission. What a blessing. Thank you, Lord, for painting with seemingly insignificant tools. This has been the best life I could ever imagine. I'm secure. This I know. And then she ended with a question, what are you thankful for today there are times in life when you will not be able to see what god is up to and in those times you you must have convictions that are rooted and established and grounded in some authoritative, objective truth outside of what you feel. You need convictions based on the truth of God's word. And so this morning, through his word to you in Genesis 45 and 46, I believe that God intends to strengthen those very convictions in you. The conviction that God is always at work, always, in everything, for your good and for His glory, even when you can't see it, even when it looks like all hope is lost. And I believe that that conviction is like ballast in a boat, you know, the the weight that's aligned in the center, the bottom of a boat, so that when the waves toss it back and forth, there's this weight always pulling it back to the middle. Do you have that kind of ballast in your boat? Let's give our attention to Genesis 45, beginning in verse 16. This is God's word. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded, loaded with grain and bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go. And see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. His sons and his son's sons with him. His daughters and his son's daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Jump down to verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt. Who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all, and the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. Father, we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, and so. We ask you to nourish our souls by your word this morning. Give us food that this world knows not of. Feed us with what is most needful to us and communicate yourself, the bread of life, your very person and presence through your spirit who accompanies the the hearing and believing of your word, the preaching of your word. Do in us all that you intend in Jesus' name. Amen. So I believe that the Holy Spirit intends to use this text to convince you, once again, that God is at work for your good and for his glory, even when it looks to you from your limited, finite perspective like all hope is lost. I want to show you where I get that in this text. This narrative is the denouement. A literary term that means the, the tying together of all the loose strands, the, the resolution of 22 years of family strife and sin and grief and loss, all of those loose ends come together, and this marks the, the resolution of that chapter before we get into the next chapter of the life of Jacob and his family in Egypt. And this. Conclusion: This denouement, it reveals convincingly and undeniably that God has been at work all along. In all of this, for the good of Jacob, and for the good of Jacob's family, and for God's glory. But to see that, we have to consider this against the backdrop of Jacob's sorrow. Jacob had, at this point, lost all hope. I mean, just remember the blessings he had received. We've looked at these throughout this sermon series. Genesis 28, 3 through 4, earlier in Jacob's life, his father Isaac had blessed him saying, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham. He inherited the very blessing of Abraham. And to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And then God himself appeared to Jacob and said to him, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the blessing of Abraham inherited by Jacob. And God himself said to him, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. These are the blessings Jacob had received. So he had reason to hope, but at this stage in his life, everything looked hopeless. I mean, over the last 22 years of his life, since Joseph's brothers had sold him into Slavery, the words most frequently associated with Jacob in this story have been sorrow and sheol, the grave. Sorrow and death keep coming up whenever Jacob appears in the narrative. I mean, the the nearly unbearable pain of losing Joseph and then the prospect of losing Benjamin have threatened in Jacob's own words, chapter 42, verse 38, to bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. That's his perspective on life. At this point in the story, he does not look like the heir of all the earth. He he looks rather pathetic. In fact, in chapter 47, when he will meet Pharaoh and stand before Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to ask him, how old are you? And his answer is going to come back, Few and evil have been the days of my life. Throughout this narrative, Jacob has not looked like some stalwart patriarch of a family with any chance of becoming a company of nations, let alone a blessing to every other nation on earth. His family looks more like they could appear on the Jerry Springer show. I mean, his oldest son, Reuben, slept with one of his wives. We know the story of Judah and how he fathered children through his daughter-in-law who disguised herself as a prostitute. All of his sons plotted to murder but decided to sell his son into slavery. This is a messed up family, and now, in his old age, Jacob is just hanging on for dear life, sitting passively at home, hoping that his sons come back from Egypt with some food so that they can live and not die, in Jacob's words. So just... Just feel the weight of that. That's been his life for 22 years. And that's saying nothing about his life before that. How he deceived his brother, ran from his, for his life because his brother wanted to kill him, dealt with his father-in-law Laban and all of that deceit and trickery. I mean, if God's promises are going to come true for Jacob, at this point he has no idea how or when? So what about you? When and where are you most tempted to, to lose hope because you just can't see what God is up to? Well, I know we all face those challenges. I mean, it could be that you're hanging on by a thread as you endure some trial in your life, and you, you fight bitterness as you struggle to see how God could possibly mean any of it for your good. You've heard that before. That's not a new idea to you, but you just don't see how it could be worked out for your good. And so what rises up in you is less like faith and more like bitterness and resentment and hard thoughts toward God. Or are you tempted to fall into self-pity and misery because you're so frustrated with your own lack of, progress and sanctification and maturity. Maybe you're frustrated and discouraged by the lack of growth you see in others. Why can't everybody else just get their act together and catch up to me? And pride and arrogance rise in your heart. Or maybe you look out at the world, moral decline and cultural degradation, and you feel pessimism and fear. I've just noticed in discipleship and counseling conversations Whatever the presenting issue is in somebody's life, despair is always right there on the heels. Whether it's somebody who's dealing with conflict in marriage or addiction to pornography or struggle with overeating or whatever it is, take a whole range of issues, despair is right there because the thought comes in it's been like this for years. I've tried everything, nothing works, it's never gonna change. In Jacob, we are reminded that faith means waiting patiently for what you do not yet have. That's what Paul says in Romans 8, 24 through 25. Hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? If you already have it, you have it. You're not hoping for it, you have it. It's in your possession. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it, with patience. That's faith. And so what encouragement does God offer to you in this text to keep you waiting patiently, to keep you hoping confidently in Him? He offers you the encouragement to trust God is always working. Always working in everything for your good, even when you can't see it. That's what we see in the life of Jacob. God was at work for Jacob's good by providing for his family in the midst of a a global famine. And Jacob had no idea. But God was behind the scenes orchestrating this over the course of years. Remember Joseph's words to his brothers back in chapter 45, verses five through seven? God sent me before you to preserve life God sent me beforehand in preparation. Why? To preserve life. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. This is God keeping his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to multiply them and make them a, a family that is a blessing to all the world. And part of how God is preserving that family, a remnant on earth, is by sending Joseph ahead of them into Egypt to keep alive for you many survivors. Joseph sees that before the brothers do. And then he clues them into what God is doing and then they see it before Jacob does. But it doesn't matter when anybody comes to realize it. It's the reality of what God has been up to the whole time. And look at how God provides. Look at the abundance of provision Pharaoh promises to Joseph and his brothers and to Jacob and his entire family. Verse 18, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. You shall eat the fat of the land. The best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. This repetition is meant to emphasize to us the, the abundance of provision. This is not just polite, socially expected hospitality from Pharaoh to Joseph's family. This is divine provision. I mean, remember this is in the midst of a severe famine when supply is low and demand is high and yet God is lavishing all that his people need to preserve them and keep them alive, a remnant on earth, the family that he is making into a blessing to all the world. God promised to do that to Jacob and he's doing it even when Jacob can't see it. Look what happens when you you believe God is at work for your good. Pharaoh's words to the brothers in verse 20, he says to them, have no concern for your goods. Have no concern. Don't be anxious. Fear not. When hope is lost, anxiety and concern abounds. Where will provision come from? How will this resolve? What comforting words. Have no concern God was at work providing for Jacob even when he couldn't see it. And you need not be anxious today because your father in heaven is that same God and he knows all you need before you even ask him. And he will always provide all you need to glorify him. God's at work for Jacob by reconciling his fractured family when he has no idea. He's not causing it or orchestrating it, bringing it together. God is. Look at Joseph's parting words to his brothers in verse 24. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Remember, he's like toward the bottom of the pack, instructing all of his older brothers, don't quarrel on the way. This is a needed assurance to them as they leave. That he really means it. He really forgives them. And think about how awkward things could potentially get for these brothers as they head back to their father Jacob with this message from Joseph to tell him, hey, dad, Joseph's alive. (laughs) That's going to bring up more questions than answers for Jacob. How did he get there? What happened? What's the story? Who's to blame? And so you can imagine this trip from Egypt back to Canaan where they all start pointing fingers and blame shifting and we're going to throw so and so under the bus because really it was his idea, wasn't it? And yeah, let's all team up against him. Whatever the case, Joseph assures them there's no need for that. There's no need for blame shifting where there is full forgiveness. Joseph's words to them, do not quarrel on the way. Parallel Jesus' words when he sends sinners away, go and sin no more. That is an assurance of forgiveness. You are right with God. Walk in that peace. Don't wallow in lingering guilt. Greg has said this over the last couple weeks that learning how to be forgiven, how to receive forgiveness is a process because there's always this temptation to wallow in misery and self-pity and guilt and self-deprecating shame, but where there is forgiveness, there's no need for any of that. So we also need to learn how to take those words to heart and learn how to despise that lingering guilt because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. The blood of Jesus atones for all your sin and you must learn to receive that and live in the reality of that. Look at what supernatural reconciliation does in this family. Joseph's brothers once stripped him of his robe, Now in verse 22, Joseph provides new clothes to each and all. Every one of his brothers who had a hand in tearing that robe off of him, he gives them new garments. That's redemption. There was a time when the brothers, according to chapter 37, verse 4, hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now they return to Canaan and they joyfully announce to their father, Joseph is still alive. What could change their hearts like that, except for the, the reconciling, redeeming, forgiving, transforming grace of God? Once they were full of envy and bitter resentment toward Joseph, and now they're rejoicing with him, exulting to tell their father, "He's the ruler of all the land of Egypt." They're not envious of him and his position. They find joy. How do you explain that except that God was at work in this family even when Jacob had no idea, just sitting at home in fear and anxiety about his son Benjamin, and God is working this out. And that same God is today reconciling the world to himself in Christ Jesus, no longer counting our sins against us, but instead entrusting us with the message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. So there's no need for anyone to wallow in that lingering guilt. But that's not all. God is at work for Jacob by remaining present with him through all of this. God never left him. When Jacob gets word that Joseph is still alive and that Jacob and his family have been invited by Joseph and by Pharaoh to come down to Egypt, he packs up his entire household. He uses these royal wagons and they set out, but they stop in a place called Beersheba. Beersheba is significant for at least two reasons. One, Beersheba is like the gateway to the the desert. It's like, you know, when you're on the interstate and you see that sign, this is the last rest stop forever. Stop now if you have to go, or just hold it for hours. That would be the sign right here. Beersheba's the last stop, and then the desert, and then Egypt. And that's a serious thing. I mean, a couple times in the Old Testament, people wandering around outside of Beersheba in the desert sit down and pray that they could just die. Elijah prays that. Hagar sits down and sees her son Ishmael dying of thirst and prays, Please just spare me. I don't want to watch him die. That all happens in the desert, the Negev, just outside of Beersheba. So this is a point of no return for Jacob. And it marks the southern boundary of the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's about to walk out of the very land God had promised to give him. So you can imagine the crisis of faith that he's facing here. Second, Beersheba is a place where both Abraham and Isaac had encounters with God. Genesis 21, 33 describes Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Jacob's father Isaac, chapter 26, went up to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. I don't know for sure, but I, I would speculate Jacob went to that altar at this time in his life when he's facing this crisis of faith, hopeless, 22 years behind him, Uncertain future ahead of him, walking away from the land God had promised to him. He desperately needs assurance from God, and so he offers sacrifices on the altar that his father Isaac built, and God graciously answers him and specifically addresses his fears and renews his promise of presence. How kind God is. Look at his words. Then God said to him, I am God. Chapter 46, 3 and 4. The God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Remember in chapter 28 when God said to him, I will be with you wherever you go? God has never left him, and God once again comforts him with his presence. You need not be afraid. Have no concern for your goods God is providing. Don't quarrel amongst yourself. There is forgiveness. Have no fear. I am with you. God has always been at work for Jacob's good and the good of his family. But God is also at work in all of this for His own glory. I mean, all of that glorifies God. When God provides and when God's presence comforts, when God brings reconciliation, God gets the glory for all of that because he's the one who does that work. But God is also at work on a a bigger level that's a lot bigger than Jacob and his family. Globally, God is at work here for the glory of his name. And that's what the meaning of this genealogy, skipped over it mostly for the sake of time and also because you don't need to hear me try to pronounce all of those names, but it's significant. I know that most of us are probably tempted when we come to genealogies in scripture to think, boring. What is this doing here? How is this relevant at all? L- L- let me tell you Jacob thought he had one living son left. Meanwhile, God had multiplied his own flesh and blood into 70 people. Jacob was convinced it was over. He couldn't see how the promises of God could be fulfilled. The reality was God was busy making him into a company of nations this entire time. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. So if the list of their names sounds boring, think of it like this. What what do you do when you have a family reunion, a get-together? What do you do when you have like three or four generations all together? Somebody says, we got to take a picture. We got to document this moment because look at this. Look at how many of us there are. Look at how many generations are represented in one place at the same time. And so we all get together and we take a family picture and it's fun to look back at and somebody's giving bunny ears. And this is a family portrait, an ancient version of a portrait at a significant moment in that family's history. This is documenting, here's who was there when God was fulfilling his promises to us in the early days, making us into a company of nations. And the number 70 is significant. Seven and 10 are both numbers of perfection. Seven is more of a qualitative perfection. And 10 is a quantitative perfection. Many, lots. So when you multiply those two numbers, you have both qualitative and quantitative perfection. Good and plenty fruitful and multiplied. This is significant. This is the initial fulfillment of that promise to make them fruitful and to multiply them. God did this when Jacob thought he only had one living son left. And there's more. In Genesis 10, there's this table of nations, the 70 original nations on earth that came from Noah's three sons. Seventy nations. So here... Every one of Jacob's living descendants is representative, kind of this microcosm, one descendant for every nation that exists on earth because God really means to glorify his name by filling the entire earth with the knowledge of his glory through this family, blessing every other family on earth, making himself known to the world and calling to himself people from every tribe and every tongue and every language. And so all the twists and the turns of the plot of this family should encourage you. This is how God works. The kingdom of God grows gradually, almost imperceptibly, right? Jesus told those parables in Matthew 13, the kingdom of God is like a tiny grain of mustard seed, and it grows and it grows and it grows into a tree bigger than any other plant in the garden. Or it's like a little leaven that a woman took and mixed through three measures of flour and all of it was leavened. The kingdom of God is gradually, imperceptibly to us, filling the earth. And this family portrait assures us, God has been up to this the whole time. Even when we can't see the progress, even when it looks to us like all hope is lost, you can be sure Christ is building his church filling the earth with his glory. But you have to zoom out. One son is too narrow. 22 years is too short. God is in this for the long haul. You got to take the big view. So God has been at work this whole time for Jacob's good and for the glory of God's global praise. But couldn't God have just not sent the famine at all? I mean, this is all great. He sent Joseph ahead of them to preserve them from the famine, but why not just not send a famine? Wouldn't that have been easier? Wouldn't that have been safer, less painful for everybody involved? This story and the rest of Scripture reminds us something we we have to, this is one of those convictions that has to function like ballast in our boats. God is writing the best and most glorious story possible. And stories with conflict, stories with tension, are better than stories without. In fact, without conflict, there is no story. You just have Once Upon a Time, they lived happily ever after. John Piper uses the term the best of all possible worlds to describe how a sovereign and wise God is orchestrating all of history. And Matt Perman describes that like this. God governs the course of history so that in the long run, his glory will be more fully displayed and his people more fully satisfied than would have been the case in any other world more fully displayed, more fully satisfied than would have been the case in any other world. If we look only at the way things are right now in the present era, take a snapshot, today in this fallen world, this is not the best of all possible worlds. You can zoom in on any sin and say, that's not the best, that's evil. That really is wicked. It really is bad. But if we look at the whole course of history, from creation to redemption to eternity and beyond, and see the eternity of God's plan. It is the best of all possible plans and leads to the best of all possible eternities, one in which a fallen and redeemed people enjoy the glory of a redeeming God. And therefore, this universe and the events that happen in it from creation into eternity, taken as a whole, is the best of all possible Worlds. How could that be? How could a a world with sin and heartache and pain be better than a world that never had any of that? I'm convinced that a fallen and redeemed world, a lost and restored people, a dead and resurrected people is better and enjoy the glory of God in a way that could not be known without that. Abraham once received Isaac back from the dead, figuratively speaking, when he offered him at Mount Moriah. Jacob here receives his son Joseph like he's back from the dead. For all Jacob knew, Joseph was dead, and he receives him back. The spirit of their father Jacob revived And Israel said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. This is a redemptive moment. God is a redeeming God, a God of restoration and a God of resurrection. He brings new creation out of chaos over and over and over in his story. He commands light out of darkness. He makes streams flow in the desert. He brings children from the barren woman. He gives sight to the blind and fills the hungry with good things. He comforts those who mourn. He calls things that are not as though they were, and He raises life out of the grave. The God of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph is a God of resurrection. And He's that same God for you today. And you can be confident that He is that same God for you because there is one God better than Joseph, Jesus, the son of God who was actually raised from the dead, who now rules and reigns with power, not from the right hand of Pharaoh, but from the right hand of his father on high. And like Joseph, he grants forgiveness to his enemies, those who hated him, and he lavishes on them gifts out of the abundance of the riches of his glory. That's Jesus resurrected and ruling and reigning and the resurrection motif in this story is meant to point us to the resurrection of Jesus which assures us hope is never lost where there's resurrection hope is never lost. His resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of the great resurrection and all who hope in Christ will be raised from the dead with him. So the resurrection of Jesus locates the The denouement, the tying together of the loose strands, the resolution of your story in the final resurrection. I can't stand here today and give you the assurance that in this life you will see all those loose ends tied up, all of your questions answered, all of redemption accomplished. But it will happen. If not in this life, then in the age to come when God makes all things new. C.S. Lewis wrote, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. And I've, I've talked with people in the midst of suffering who have said that. I just can't imagine how anything in the future could ever make up for the suffering I've endured. Lewis says, those who say that don't know that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. That's why we never lose hope. So let the true story of Jacob and Joseph point you to Christ. And let the death and resurrection of Jesus assure you that God is always working in everything for his glory and for your good, the good of all who trust him. Trust him today, even when you can't see what he's up to. Let's pray.